Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Jessica Bissett, and I'm the Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I am thrilled to introduce our moderator, Keith Abel, who will lead the conversation about China Evergrande Group. Briefly, Keith is co-founder of Level Next LLC, a collaborative workspace company, and Sungay Properties LLC, a real estate company that led pioneering investments in Trophy U.S. office properties. In addition, we are very fortunate that Keith serves as treasurer and as director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Keith's full bio can be found on our webpage. Over to you, Keith, to introduce our speaker, Dr. Meg Rithmeyer. Thank you, Jessica. We um, have been reading uh, in the popular press lately a lot about a Chinese, major Chinese property development company called Evergrande, uh, who is embroiled in a situation right now that some call a crisis uh, and has raised many questions about the nature of the challenges that Evergrande is facing. Uh, they are heavily indebted. They have raised questions about whether this is the uh, chickens coming home to roost natural consequence of the moral hazard posed by the politicized manner in which China has allocated debt more or less from its uh, the, the, the beginning of economic reform. Um, and, and on the uh, other hand, it has also raised questions about whether or not this is really just part and parcel of a political action uh, that is that is encompassed the disappearing of billionaires and public acts of contrition, and uh, and the Chinese government sending a signal to the private sector about how uh, powerful and wealthy they're prepared to let private sector actors become. Uh, and then there are those who believe, like most things in China, it's got elements of both, uh, just not woven together in the manner that most people in the West are equipped to understand. So in order to help us sort through all this, we are very fortunate today uh, to have Dr. Meg Rithmile, the F. Warren McFarland Associate Professor in the Business Government and International Economy Unit at Harvard Business School. Meg's primary expertise is in the comparative political economy of development with a focus on China and Asia. She also looks at the role of the Chinese Communist Party in China's political economy and trade and investment conflict between China and the United States. And additionally, we are proud to have her as a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. So we could be, no, we could not possibly be more fortunate to have someone of Meg's caliber to explain this very complicated and very timely situation to us. A uh, situation that some people are referring to as China's Lehman Brothers moment. So to clarify all of this, Meg, thank you very much with, for speaking with us today. And let's jump Thanks right in. Thanks for having it. me. What an introduction. Thank you. So I think the best way to start is, can you give us just an overview in your own words as, as to what's happening with Evergrande and how did we get here? 
So Evergrande is the most indebted property developer in the world, and that's not a new thing. It's been the most indebted company in China for a few years now, um, long before it became a crisis. And the issue of debt is not really new in Chinese real estate markets or in the Chinese corporate sector, at least in the short term, but in the long term, it kind of is. Um, so let me explain what I mean by that. Um, so in the so Deng Xiaoping started China's reform and opening, introduced markets and some capitalism 40 years ago, over 40 years ago in China. And for the first couple of decades there, it was really difficult for non-state firms. So Chinese firms tend to be, we tend to think of them as owned by the state, state-owned enterprises, SOEs, I'll call them, or private sector companies. And it used to be that these private sector companies had a really hard time accessing capital markets in China. Um, equities markets were really underdeveloped. The stock exchanges only started in the 1990s. Um, and even long after that were pretty dormant, um, pretty sleepy places. Uh, I actually remember when I first visited the Shanghai Stock Exchange in 2001, everyone was literally asleep on their desks. So that's not what you normally think of when you think of a, um, a busy um, equity market. Um, and they couldn't really access finance or, or lending right from Chinese banks. And so uh, that all changed really in the 2000s when the financial sector was much more open to non-state firms in China. But as you sort of suggested in your introduction, not all non-state firms were treated equally. <laughs> so your average like, you know, local developer had a hard time getting loans, um, especially from state-owned banks, um, which the state-owned banks dominate the Chinese financial system, unless you know, he or she had some connections or some way to guarantee a state-owned bank that's particularly risk averse and in an environment where interest rates are pretty highly regulated, so you can't price risk appropriately, um, had a pretty hard time accessing finance unless you knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. So what we end up seeing from basically 2005 all the way until the present is the, a massive explosion of corporate debt in China. Um, and that's, you know, for mostly for the, the, it's for the state sector as well as for the private sector. So we're typically, we're, we're used to thinking of Chinese state-owned enterprises is kind of large and inefficient, but it's also true that very large private firms in China, with a few exceptions, um, you know, ended up accruing a lot of debt during this time period as well. The other actor that, that took on a lot of debt was the government itself, but not the central government, but rather local governments. Um, and that has to do with a change primarily in China's fiscal system through which in 1994, there was this tax recentralization. It used to be that local governments, uh, they got to keep the taxes that were generated um, by economic activity in their jurisdictions. But after 1994, most of those taxes go to the central government such that local governments in China cannot really levy their own taxes. They hand most of their taxes up to the central government um, and they can't borrow directly in bond markets like say the city of Philadelphia or the city of New York um, is able to do. And so they ended up relying on land and real estate development uh, to generate their um, revenues, which they still had this massive expenditure burden. So most cities, provinces in China are responsible for things like schools, healthcare, infrastructure, but again, they don't get to keep these tax revenues. And so they have to generate money somehow, and they tend to do it through stoking real estate development through land sales. And so we get this massive kind of urbanization, infrastructure, real estate driven economic boom in China that you know has other sources as well. Um, but so we get to have these huge um, conglomerate firms that tend to be quite indebted, um, and as well as real estate being this main driver of economic activity in many Chinese cities. Well, uh, thank you for that very uh, thorough background explanation of 
how the the debt accumulation in the private sector has occurred in recent years. Uh, but we've seen something somewhat similar back in the, the prior to the Asian economic crisis, mm -hmm. where China emerged actually as one of the stabilizing influences in the entire Asian region to deal with the economic crisis because the government was able to enforce stability through governmental action, triangular debt and concepts that no one had ever really you know, envisioned mm -hmm. before, but was, was something that Chinese government was uniquely able to, uh, you know, to face and to, and to manage. Now, this mm -hmm. was before that entire explosion of corporate debt that right. you just referenced. So I guess the question is, do they have the tools now to use mm -hmm. these or other means to intervene? Uh, and do they have the political will to do that? Or are they inclined as America did with Lehman for better or for worse to just let the moral hazard play out and teach the market a lesson? So that's the question. How much instability are they willing to tolerate um, to generate better incentives within the system? So let me briefly tell you um, about two 1990s crises that I think are relevant. So you mentioned one, which is the Asian financial crisis, but um, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but even before the Asian financial crisis, China had a real estate bubble and a debt crisis in 1992. And it happened really, um, and you know, everyone forgot about it, um, but it's really the foundation of the system that China has right now. So in the late 1980s, there was a kind of liberalization of land markets for the first time. Nobody really knew who owned the land, et cetera, et cetera. So you have universities getting involved and in leasing out the land that they occupy. State-owned enterprises do it, hospitals do it. And everyone started building. There was this kind of real estate craze, as we say in China, everything's a, a craze, right? So building real estate, selling apartments to people who had enough savings to buy those apartments. And then, you know, they start to get worried about things overheating. You know, one major company in Hainan defaults and it triggers, you know, this, this difficult kind of period for um, many Chinese cities, mostly on the East Coast and in the kind of special economic zones areas or the, the open coastal cities in China at that time. And so in the aftermath of that, you have the party state saying, look, we can't have this kind of thing. Real estate is a very dangerous sector. We want it to grow because obviously someone's got to finance the growth of these cities. We're, or, we're urbanizing at a, a rate that's unprecedented in world history, right? So we've had in one generation, an urbanization process that took like five generations in the United States and 10 maybe in most European countries. And so Chinese cities need to expand from the small things that they were, right, to physically accommodate this massive influx of people from the countryside. So they needed a real estate sector, but they had to figure out how to control it. And so the solution there was that the government will own the land. The local governments will own the land. Um, and that the, center the central government will hierarchically regulate that land. And that the financial sector is suspicious in China, right? So then once we get to the Asian financial crisis, you're exactly right. So, you know, I I'm, I'm writing a book now that includes, you know, a, a comparison of China, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Suharto's Indonesia collapsed, right? An authoritarian regime that, you know, that lost its life basically in the, in the Asian financial crisis. And that didn't go lost, um, those lessons on the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. So basically what the difference is, is that they had a kind of closed capital account. So you couldn't withdraw your money easily from China at that time. You couldn't convert the renminbi to other currency. And so they're able to arrest the kind of currency pressure and speculation that they envisioned drove those financial crises 
um, in other countries in Asia. So then, you know, what happens, right? So then we get to the 2000s in China, and there is a series of financial reforms because they're very serious in their desire to allocate capital to facilitate economic growth in China. So clearly, you know, after many decades of experience, you know, the idea is it's not going to be state-owned enterprises that are going to drive innovation in China. They're not going to be at the next level of doing the kinds of, you know, technological innovations or managerial innovations that are going to make China grow to become a rich country. And so they need some liberalization of the financial sector to make sure that private businesses are able to get um, loans, but they don't fully liberalize it. And, and so that it's, you know, transparent, accountable, we don't get an actual liberal system in China. And so you end up having kind of loopholes, loopholes everywhere. So then what happens? So then you get these big indebted firms. Um, you get, you know, of course, Evergrande's the one we're all talking about now, but it's not the only one. So here are some other firms that Anbang Insurance, which was nationalized by the government in, in, in early 2018, um, which made basically the Chinese Communist Party the owner of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. So that was a company that basically was rescued under its debt burden, but nationalized. And so it wasn't, well, let me say, that was a company that was not rescued. What it was, was nationalized, right? So they didn't bail it out, they took control. Huarong was bailed out. Um, another company, China Minchang Investment Group that I've done some work on, it was basically bailed out and restructured. Um, other ones of these, what, what Xi Jinping has called gray rhinos, these large indebted companies that pose basically a systemic risk to China. So um, HNA, Hainan Airlines, which many of us know has basically fallen victim to the regime and its own poor financial planning. Whereas other companies that seem similar like Dalian Wanda or Four Sun, um, have been sort of disciplined, but allowed to live on. So forced to unwind a lot of their investments, particularly their global investments for which they borrowed in foreign markets and euros or in US dollars. Um, and so this dance of what do you do? Do you let a company like this um, unwind? Do you bail it out? If you bail it out, right, the clear message is we're intolerant of financial instability, which means that most managers can make whatever decisions they're gonna make because in the end, we're gonna come clean up your mess because we can't have it affecting households in China. On the other hand, it's interesting to me that they've picked Evergrande to be the hill to die on in this sense because of all of these companies, Evergrande is the most systemic and the most consumer facing. So if I were sitting in Beijing right now, I would really wish I had a time machine and I could go back and let some of these other companies really go belly up before I had to get to the biggest one and the one where many households in China are on the hook with Evergrande if they don't get what they paid for in terms of apartment buildings and apartments and things like that. And so, um, so are they willing to tolerate a chaotic unwinding? And it, and, it, and it might be chaotic, right? So one, one scenario would be that they find other firms that will take over Evergrande's assets and, and make some deals such that the company can be unwound in a kind of managed fashion. But the chaotic unwinding seems to be something that would be very difficult for me to imagine the Chinese government tolerating. Um, extremely interesting. Um, and some of these companies like um, HNA is a great example, uh, but certainly Anbang and others have been controversial uh, in, the, in the circle of China watchers for some time uh, because it was clear that they were using their access to debt to diversify into overseas investment in areas that were not strategic. And it raised the question in many circles as to how long actually the government would tolerate that and encourage it. 
Uh, and, it, and it's become increasingly clear over the course of the last probably decade that 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 that, that game has a, um, uh, an end uh, and that the government is only willing to tolerate it so far and tighten the screws on debt for some of these companies leading to such things as privatization, asset divestiture, and, and, and so on. Um, Evergrande, is a, as a real estate developer, you know, has been reported to have been undisciplined in how they've used their debt capital. But one gets the impression most of their debt capital was used to expand their business in China in their core strategic area of endeavor. So it is somewhat different than some of these other examples that you referenced. Right. Um, and, and being real estate, of course, it's not the sort of business that disappears. Nope. When, when, when the ownership and control passes to another hand, it's still just buildings that they can build and finish and rent out. So right. Evergrande in some respects is, is not as risky from an operational perspective in terms of the business becoming, uh, losing its value. But it is from a financial perspective, a fundamental hazard to the economy as a whole, as people wrestle through just how far can they depend on the Chinese government to bail out companies like this, even companies with such enormous amount of consumer facing vulnerability. So there's a question for you is why Evergrande? And is this a political statement? Is this confidence that because of its industry, it can in fact be restructured more easily than some? You know, or is this a way of forcing the moral hazard to be brought to the forefront and make everybody deal with it. Well, you know this business so well, so it's interesting. It's almost more interesting to hear you talk about it for me than to hear to answer these questions myself. I would ask you what you think about that question. I mean, that you know, of course, you're right. And I've I've thought that the likely end stage of this is going to be local real estate developers basically taking control of some of these projects, turning them around, and they'll probably be uh, basically fine and. Um, and the reason why I think it's basically fine is, and we discussed this a little bit, so you know, for all of the obsession with empty apartment buildings and ghost cities in China, actually urbanization just works in a different way in China. Um, it's worked in a different way in China for 20 years, which is, and I encourage people to read Jeremy Wallace's book, Cities Instability, which is basically, and he starts with the question, why are there no urban slums in China, right? So any casual traveler to Latin America, right, in India, et cetera, might see large tent cities, right, um, informal developments. And you don't tend to see that. these large scale slums on the scale that you might see in Mumbai or Buenos Aires or Rio de Janeiro, right, in China. And partly that's because the government has a, a lever of control over mobility, right, with the HUCO, with the internal passport system. Um, it also has ownership over land, um, which it uses to control how that works, right? And so in many ways, the model of urbanization has been kind of supply-led, right? Um, so meaning first you build a kind of new area of a city, and then you open it up, and then people come to live in it. So my favorite you know, thing was that you know, 10 years ago, when everyone was obsessing about ghost cities in China, almost all of the ghost cities that featured 
in you know these prominent accounts are now pretty thriving urban or suburban centers. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons to think that some of the assets um, that Evergrande has could be un unwound, right, with less chaos than might be the case for another kind of sector, another kind of firm. I mean, there are there was some experimentation, I would like to say, which experimentation is a main way in which the CCP does things. So we've known this for 40 years longer where they try out something to see how it works and then tweak that policy over and over again. Um, and so they did experiment with letting some companies default over the last couple of years. So I can think of some tech companies that did. Um, and, and so that experience of trying to say, look, there has to be some discipline in some of these markets. Um, but then at the end of the kind of default or bankruptcy, there's a kind of slow but sure signal from the state that they're gonna clean up the mess. So you have provincial companies taking over some of these assets or reinfusing capital in some of these firms. And so, um, so you know, there's just a lot of mixed up interest there. And so we'll see, you know, it may be true that Evergrande, um, you know, because with those kinds of defaults that they've been or, or bankruptcies are kind of letting firms fail, right? Um, they've done it with companies that not everyone's going to pay attention to, but everyone's going to pay attention to Evergrande. So, so in some ways, it could be a smart move, right, by the state to say, basically, this can happen to any of you. But my question then would be, look, it's not the only massively indebted firm in China. There are so many of them. And is the state prepared um, to basically mop up the assets and redistribute the assets and then you know, what kind of uh, situation, what kind of business, right, is Beijing in? If it's, if it's assigning assets to companies all throughout China to make sure that it's both generating the kinds of incentives that, you know, stopping the moral hazard, as we say, um, but then making sure that it's not chaotic or generating social instability, then um, that just requires a lot of decisions and a lot of, um, a lot of mechanistic control from Beijing, which historically they've not actually been that good at. Um, and so you can see that, for example, at the financial crisis in 2015, where they're trying to keep asset prices afloat and they keep infusing all this money into the markets and then the counterparties just sop it up because they're like, that's exactly what I wanted to sell. So thank you very much. So there are players throughout the system who can figure out how to get this right. And I guess it's my belief that it's really hard for a one-party regime to take on the private sector um, and still have it work out in a way that generates economic growth and generates, um, generates stability. So Beijing is really in a tough spot. Well, that was terrific and uh, a lot to unpack. Uh, but I'm glad that you um, raised the question of the experimental nature of Chinese economic reform and development. Because one of the questions that emerges from the discussion that we're having right now is whether or not what we're seeing is a reaction to whatever has been concluded about the overall experiment with free market since economic reform began. Because the moves that are being made right now, which may be linked and may not be linked. We could discuss Evergrande in the context of moral hazard and, 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 and things that seem like a responsible reaction to an undisciplined market. But when you put it together with some things that are happening of a more political nature with companies like Alibaba, or the, you know, God knows what the, 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 the motivations were behind the regulatory obstacles to the Soho China Blackstone deal, there's a lot of things that are quite murky in terms of what actually the, the Communist Party's motivations might be in, in, in making all of these moves and how linked they might be. 
So are we seeing a fundamental rethinking of what the free market capitalism um, can offer China and how China intends to accommodate it into its system and how much it tends to establish limits and boundaries to how far they're willing to go? Yes. <laughs> So certainly we are watching a sea change, um, as we say, in how, how the, the, the Communist Party is seeing China. Um, and you can read about that everywhere. So let me try and say a couple of things that might be interesting or provocative or a couple of perspectives that you might not be getting from, every, from, from you know, the, the, the front page of every newspaper right now looking at this. So I mean, clearly they're talking about common prosperity. They're taking on some of these large systemic risks, talking about stability. And all of this is happening at the same moment of what, um, as everyone loves to call it, a resurgent China on the world stage. So we've seen, you know, what China has done in Hong Kong. Um, you know, China being more allegedly more aggressive vis-a-vis um, -vis its, it, you know, its, its global partners and on the global stage and getting what it wants, right? And so a lot of this sometimes is interpreted as China's and its triumphant moment, right? So, you know, Xi Jinping was waiting, you know, the, all of the hiding and biding your time, you know, waiting and hiding your strength, et cetera. So they've just been waiting for a long time to reassert communist control over the country. And I really don't think that there's much evidence <laughs> that that's the case. Um, instead, I would really encourage, um, I encourage people to look at it through the lens of contingency and surprise and experimentation, as you said. Um, so it's always been an experiment with markets, with markets in different areas. And for a long time, the idea was you introduce markets um, to solve some of the problems of excessive state control over things. So if the state was excessively controlling agriculture, so you introduce some markets to see how it works, you kind of nationalize or, um, or embrace what's working about that, you shut down experiments that don't go well, but markets are kind of a, a, a solution to some of the problems of the state, but they're not a replacement for the state, right? They've always been a solution to some things and we're supposed to meet markets, right? Um, meet state power with markets and have a kind of hybrid of both of those things. So it was very clear for a long period of time that China never really intended to embrace a kind of Western model of capitalism that may have been a fantasy held by some people um, the world over and even some people within China. But even if you look at the language of reformers, some of the some of the most prominent reformers in the 80s, 90s, um, it doesn't seem to be a widely held belief that they were ever going to abandon state control or replace the state with markets. It's more about um, the dance between the two. And so instead of triumphalism, I'd like to emphasize that the, the that the movement we're seeing right now is is really about fear. And it's about what they've learned is that they cannot trust the private sector in China to allocate capital or have the regime's best interest in mind, um, which you know, I'm here at the Harvard Business School, which everyone would say, well, the private sector isn't supposed to have the regime's best interest in mind. Of course, that's not what it's supposed to do. Um, so no surprise there, but indeed, from basically the anti-corruption campaign, from the financial crisis of 2015, 2016, which was very surprising to regulators and to the party state, I think a lot of what they've learned is we cannot trust entrepreneurs in China. We cannot trust financial participants to behave in a way um, that is good for society and won't generate instability. And so you start to see things like financial stability being part of national security as part of the national security law and these kinds of things. So the securitized approach to the political economy in China, which means it's all about regime stability. And so the idea is we no longer trust these big platforms to do things and to protect China's interests in the world, right? So China is now 
you know, deeply entangled in the world and has complex security and economic relationships with all kinds of countries, especially with the United States. And we cannot trust private sector actors in China to be navigating that relationship. And guess what? The United States has the same view of its own companies. We cannot trust our own companies to be investing in China in a way that secures United States long-term interests vis-a-vis China and managing the relationship. And so it's really about distrust um, more than it is about triumphalism. Um, but we're definitely witnessing a changing moment in China. And it's not perhaps a forever moment. Things in China change quickly. Um, you know, moments that we think we seem to think we can't see our way out of eventually you know, they, they, they change again. Um, and I think the challenge with this moment is trying to figure out what the engine of growth is going to be in China. I mean, any, any economist will tell you that the engine of growth in China for the last three decades has been the private sector, has been, you know, mostly medium-sized firms who have inserted themselves into global supply chains, have been incredibly productive and competitive. And so how is the leadership going to be able to harness those creative and competitive energies while it's also cracking down on the private sector and also unwilling to develop a really accountable rule of law system through which business actors can engage without having to engage in corruption or these kinds of informal relationships with the state. That's the challenge for a country like China. We've just never seen it done in the world before. It doesn't mean it's not possible, but it would be new. You know, um, strikes me that all of this is new. Uh, you know, I, I think even those of us who've been watching closely have never really doubted that regime stability was a priority that was not likely to be eclipsed by anything. Right. But I think many of us believed that the free market would prove its value and create a momentum that simply, you know, would, would carry on on a certain trajectory that wasn't easily dislodged and wouldn't be in the interests of the regime to dislodge. And that the balance between regime stability social objectives and economic growth could somehow be managed in a manner not wildly different than what other developed economies do. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and the events of the moment seem to throw all of that into question, not only internally in China, but also in regards to the competition between China and the West and the United States uh, in particular, as to whether or not this is emblematic of China introducing a brand new approach to managing a free market economy that's potentially more effective and more powerful than what we've seen, or is in fact revealing fundamental contradictions and weaknesses that make us question whether China's emergence and resurgence is probable at all. Uh, and I think it'd be unfair to ask you for the answers to these questions because Clearly nobody has them, but I think as your as our time wraps up, I think it would be, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you for your prediction as to where all this leads from here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really well said, you know, and if you look back, I mean, Xi Jinping would not be thrilled to hear me say this, but if you look back at the architects of the so-called Chongqing model under Bo Xilai in 2009, 2010, before, Bosilai's dramatic exit from politics in 2012, they were writing quite a bit about exactly this. How do you have a very strong state that does not subject itself to the, the environmental, economic, social problems of free market capitalism, but nonetheless does have markets? And that's a key thing. So they're not done with markets in China. In fact, 
the phrase that I like to use is they want to rule by market, not be ruled by markets, right, but use markets to allocate resources that the state wants to allocate um, and use markets to discipline people, right, but not to discipline themselves. And again, that's a very, historically a very hard thing to do. So the writing in Chongqing was kind of on the wall and Xi Jinping, I think, has adopted elements of that Chongqing model. And it's all about trying to forge a third way, which is what they call it, a third way, which is not, you know, free fight capitalism, as some people in Asia have called it, right, nor is it state socialism, but really combining markets with state guidance in a way that is better than either capitalism or socialism. That is the language that is being used. And they believe it, right? It's not a power grab. You know, it's not, you know, just a game of trying to punish certain people and capture the assets for themselves, at least in my view, right? But how it works out, it's very hard to say. Um, I mean, China is a place that we have said many times, the people who've trained me, I'm always cognizant, they declared the end of China many times and it's and it's still going. So. You know, I, I won't count them out. But one thing I will say is that, you know, traditionally markets need accountability to work. They do. They need accountability and they need some transparency. And part of the reason why China has the corporate debt that it has and has the corruption and malfeasance it has is because there's not accountability and there's no media to expose these kinds of things, right? A company like Evergrande would have been taken down by the Western media, you know, 10 years ago if it exists in the way that it exists outside of China, inside of China. And so I would say I have to express a little skepticism. Um, that it's possible to have things like a modern financial system or to have a modern technology sector without the kinds of regulatory institutions that make market markets work. And trust me, we have them here. We don't have an unfettered free market. We have regulation. And so it's really not about you know markets or no markets. It's about do you regulate those markets in a way that is you know according to the rule of law and has accountability and transparency. And if they can figure that mix out, there may be no stopping them. But I have to express some skepticism at the outset. Well, I think that's the perfect place to wrap this up, uh, that we all retain a healthy skepticism about China's prospects, but nonetheless respect that what they're trying is a brand new experiment and that they have proven that their experimental method of development can produce miraculous results, unlike anything the world has ever seen in human history. And one can only speculate about what the years to come are going to hold for China and for all of those uh, countries all around the world that have dealings with China. Uh, so I, on behalf of everyone on the, the, in the National Committee, Meg, we thank you for your wisdom. Well, thank you. The committee is great. It's been, it's been great to be, uh, to be a part of it. I wouldn't know half of what I know if it weren't for the committee. So thank you for all of it. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Keith. Likewise, May. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.